Hi, Isabel Alexander, taking a pause here from packing and introducing the third in our series on expat working and living. These are interviews that I did with my daughter, Amanda, during COVID, but the content and the context is still relevant for you today if you are considering expat lifestyle or you're just curious about what it's like to live in the Middle East. Be sure to stay to the end of the interview, subscribe to our channel, and get the free download of Amanda's expert expat tips. Enjoy! Welcome to the Lift As You Climb podcast, where it's all about the journey and the joy of discovering who you are now, deciding who you want to become, and embracing your genuine identity, influence, and impact. In each episode, we'll explore how life's experiences have prepared us for what we choose to do next and how to create our encore, write our own script, and star in the next stage of our lives. I'm your host, your encore strategist and transformation catalyst, Isabel Alexander. All right, we're back again, and we've let her hair down. This is Isabel Banerjee in Tucson, Arizona, and Amanda Sheldon recently landed from Dubai in the UAE, now in Toronto, Canada, and had two previous episodes where we have explored what it's like to be a woman living and traveling in different parts of the world with a little bit about what the expat life is uh, about and a little bit about the great misconceptions about what it's like in the UAE and the Gulf region. Amanda, we were sharing that you've just repatriated to Canada after being 10 years out of the country. And you have built an extensive career background of experience moving up in operations and in management level. And now you're coming back to Canada, starting a new job. And I wanted you to compare some of the differences that you expect now. We'll say my industry is retail. So there, there are going to be differences than working for a corporate or a private company on any side of the world. But the biggest differences, I would say, is in the Middle East, I had a six-day work week. It was... 30 days vacation plus public holidays. So I remember my first couple of years thinking, why are they giving me so much? What am I going to do with this? Can I just bank it and give it to somebody else? But after 10 years, I will say that's the one thing I'm going to miss the most because that's how I was able to take all those fabulous trips around the world because I had the time. So the repatriation and understanding, for example, that my job here in Toronto will give me two weeks vacation, but after five years, I can get three weeks. So they drop. Doesn't hold a candle to what I had in the belief. The other, oh, go ahead. Maria, just before we go ahead, because this may be a curiosity for other people. 
So you said you work six days a week and you have 30 days vacation annually. Um, so how did you celebrate? Did you have TGIF? What, what days of the week? Yes. Uh, again, it's, it's so normal for me that I have to transition back here. In the Middle East, the, the calendar runs Sunday. Uh, and so Friday, Saturday are considered the weekend days. Uh, Friday being their religious day. So what, in North America, we have Sunday to go to church. They go to the mosque for the, the big prayers on Friday. Um, and that is typically for, for any level of workers. Um, they all have Friday off. So it's actually quite celebratory every week in the city because people could go out. They're out with their families doing picnics or whatever it is that they have to do in terms of buying groceries. And then depending on what type of job you have, you would work again on the Saturday. And so, you know, most people in, in offices and corporate or administrative work would be working six days a week. That's correct. So in my final uh, few years, I moved up into corporate life solely. So I did have a five-day work week. Um, but I did, I will say my first few years, especially in Kuwait and then going into Dubai, I liked the six-day work week um, because it gave me that opportunity to be alongside my team. Mm -hmm. um, you have a, a feeling of true rest. If your job ended up five, you leave, you're not taking the work home with you. Things are open much later there. The mall is open till midnight, 2 a.m. Sometimes during the year, restaurants, most people would dine at 9 p.m. Again, it was a di very different lifestyle. I remember when I visited you being surprised pleasantly that the mall wasn't just a place where people went and shopped and, or, and ate and left or went to the movies, but it seemed to be like a community center where families came and it was, it was very lovely. It was social because of that interaction. Now, I guess part of it was because it's too hot outside or too dust. At times, but still, it was like, that's a better use of real estate. Absolutely. And malls are, gosh, every corner. North America has a Starbucks on every corner. The Middle East has a mall. But each mall serves a different community purpose. Often that integration of having the doctor's office, plus your music center for children, the nail salon, like all of those community services are there. And for an expat, it just meant that you could do all your errands in one place and then go out and enjoy the cup of coffee with your girlfriends or colleagues afterwards as well. You didn't have to travel a lot. Another thing I remember came back to me, my fascination with your, the mall's parking control systems. And, which I don't know if North America has adopted this yet. You actually have an app now as well in Dubai. So the sensors on the ceiling would tell you where there was an available space and it would light up. So you didn't have to go round around looking for an open spot. You could actually just look up at the ceiling and it would show you. And valet. So this is, I think, another thing I will miss is I valeted my car everywhere and it was often free. And so you didn't have to worry about circling this, the parking lot of the pharmacy, trying to find something. You just valeted and you went inside. And there were none of those standoffs with two cars trying to get in the same parking spot or anything like that, right? Uh, it's okay. 
But you have to give graciously to the other person who's first. Okay. All right. I will do that. You also mentioned the salons and the nails, and that's another great memory for me of going to the nails salons with you yes. and Dubai and going, wow. Oh, by the way, cheers. 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 We're working hard. We're working hard here as women. And since we are overtime now recording our third episode today, we've decided to reward ourselves with a glass of wine. Cheers. Out of the nail salons that I experienced with you were really quite service level above anything I'd experienced in my travels. And I really wish that you could bring back that design of the chair with the pedicure, the nails, the, everything all together, and the lovely tea service that came with it. I will say that, especially in Dubai, five-star service was something that every company aspired to. And I have not seen it anywhere else in the world. Like They truly go above and beyond to make a customer or a client feel valued, whether you're buying a $1 item or a million dollar item is the same service that's expected. So you don't, you don't go anywhere fast. So a nail appointment here, you could get in and out maybe 30 minutes in an express if you're lucky. Whereas there, I knew it was a three hour day because you got the tea, you got the massage, you would have somebody do your eyebrows, you'd have the mani-pedi all from this one station. And they didn't want you to go. Like they, they want to show how valuable you are as a customer. And that's what would keep you coming back over and over again. Any insight into why that seemed to be the pre predominant practice of customer service to the, the five-star level? So there's several things. I think what came to mind right away is the Arab culture, and I think specifically of Kuwait and, and Dubai, but I'm sure it's everywhere. There isn't expectation of hospitality. And so it translates or trickles down into businesses and especially retail businesses to make sure that somebody feels at home when they're shopping. And so brands would go above and beyond to teach customer service. And that was part of what I did was right. to teach that level of service that would anticipate a need and be able to deliver before the customer really actually realized they had a need for it. And as I said, you could go to the little corner restaurant, which was a hole in the wall place and get the same level of hospitality as going to the seven star, you know, hotel where they brought you hot towels when you walked in the door. It was all the same mantra for everyone. It'd be wonderful if that attitude would transcend uh, everywhere. It would be great for all businesses, I think, and certainly for all customers. And I will say that one of the best factors to this is that hiring is universal. It's global. So a, a company looks for the best of the best. Or in my case, example, in retail, if we didn't find the best, we would find people from these other countries, bring them in and teach them the expectation. And we spent a lot of time investing in people's well-being and training in order to make sure that then the end result was the customer expectation or experience that was five-star or was as close to perfect as we could get it. I was impressed with how you used to invest in your talent 
training them, supporting them to grow, develop yeah. those people. I thought that was very smart instead of the constant revolving door of people. Yes. Best of the best, or as you say, building the best of the best. The difference from North America to, um, any, I guess, anywhere where you go um, within the Middle East or Asia is these are full-time only positions. And I do think that changes someone's perspective when, as I said earlier, their livelihood and their family's livelihood rests on their employment and their progression in that employment. So it isn't a part-time job to get through university. It's a full-time position to support a family or support building a house in their country. And so that does put a different responsibility, but also a level of pride in what they do. We would spend time with the brands that I worked in recognizing even small contributions to build that confidence and build that level of sense of ownership and what they could do to grow. And then again, try and internally promote as much as possible to show people movement, which then had the buy-in effect that I needed to make sure that I had a loyal staff that stayed with us. No wonder you were content to be there for a decade because you were building your own family and your own relationships uh, with the people. They, they were your work family. They were. They truly were. I have more babies born than I can count from my staff and being able to see people get married or the times where they were able to sponsor their children to come live with them in the country. Like all of those moments we were all together with, which is very humbling when, again, you see what you come from and what they have is so little and yet they do so much with it. It's very beautiful, Amanda. So what else would you think that, okay, I didn't, didn't see that coming uh, as part of your career development? Ooh, I shot in Dubai um, the opportunity to work for several different types of brands. Yeah. And so I think I, I was unprepared for the economic downturn that the Middle East hit back in 2017, yeah. the first time. And so I wasn't prepared for the idea that the country didn't have infinite wealth to spend. And so I had to change my expectations of what business looked like and really pivot my management style to be probably more assertive than a female was expected to be, uh, but also more assertive than my staff had ever seen me to be. So that took a learning on my part to understand how to be aggressive to get the sales going, but also then be mindful of, as I said, that development that was so cornerstone to my values. Well, that, that's it. Uh leveling up your own skills and as we like to say in the family put your big girl panties on and yeah right i think the first time i ever said that somebody that gave me this look like what and so i the often those phrases that are so common practice to us and i uh, have to, to hold my tongue like i used to have a, a boss who would say poke my eye out when staff would do something frustrating and i remember the first few years saying that and like doing the motion and having male staff really concerned that i was going to hurt myself and trying to explain like no it's just a southern saying it's okay you're fine yeah that's definitely there's a interpretation uh, 
through language and culture so you know be careful about sure all right so you just to give people a, a sense you've alluded to the fact that it was a, all immigrants mostly that were coming into the workforce you included in the expat sector what countries were most of your colleagues from Oh, in our office places, often it was people from Britain or from France. So obviously the British Commonwealth helped grow that region extensively. So there's close ties to employment. I had a lot of American colleagues, but then as, as I went into uh, my stores or into the brands that I managed, the majority of the staff came from the Philippines, India, Pakistan, and Nepal. Uh, as time has gone on, both governments, Kuwait and UAE, did a big push to have localization into the place. I would have one or two staff that were Emirati or one or two staff that were Kuwaiti, but it was a different expectation. And that's a different episode, possibly in the future, right? Because most North Americans wouldn't understand that that a very segregation by nationality in terms of career ambitions and just general like expectations of working or not working, right? It was threat. Not that they were capable individuals. It was just not done. Not not done and not necessarily the segment that they were encouraged. I think there's um stereotypes, forgive me for saying this for um a lot of Indian nationals, you're either a doctor or an engineer. Yeah. Um, and so in the Middle East, often you had to be the manager or the CEO of your company as opposed to just an employee somewhere in the line. And so it was changing that mindset in these young locals that they could enter the workforce to contribute in different ways. And what do you think required that shift? Was it an economic influence that said, okay, guys, we want... Or is it because they really realized they needed to have their own people also in the infrastructure? I'm, I'm not as familiar with the politics of it, but I would say Saudi was the leader to show that they could be a self-sufficient country, which is why it's a bigger push in that particular country to have all locals working in across multiple sectors. So mm -hmm. in retail, for example, if I had female staff in my cosmetic brand, they had to all be Saudi females. There could not be an expat mixed in uh, because the government wanted the communities to see that they had to put roots down and actually contribute back to their country. In UAE and in Kuwait, it's a little bit different because they're a little wealthier as a nationality mix. So it's more about showing that they didn't need to be self-sufficient on expat and that their ideas mattered so that they can contribute. I, as an entrepreneur, I was very interested in that perspective. And when I visited you once, we went to a business women's breakfast or luncheon meeting. Yes. And to learn that a lot of the local companies, uh, they were owned by the locals, but they were run by expats. And how there was a desire for the ownership to become more involved and more hands-on in their own businesses. 
Uh, because it just wasn't the way it was done before. So, no. Yeah. And it's fascinating because the younger generation that comes up really is very innovative and very creative. And especially in Dubai, they're fostering that um, environment. So um, a lot of the you know, humdrum office towers have been converted into these hubs of technology that allow these younger local students to come in, work, give ideas. But then it also teaches them the business practices to run their own businesses when the time comes. So they're doing it methodically, but with the aim that more of the population will get involved across multiple sectors. I think in the service industry, it's probably going to be the last place touched. They won't be in the construction field or the garbage collection anytime soon, but definitely across some of these bigger sectors outside of the oil and gas, there'll be a, a better split going forward. Yeah. So the higher, a little higher earning potential. Correct. Yes. Status. Right? Status. Absolutely. Okay. Excuse me. Anyway, so you mentioned earlier with the mall and then we diverted away, but certainly I think that's uh, something that many people would relate to the stories about these phenomenal malls in the Middle East and the um, extracurricular activities stay available at the mall just because we want to be fair to everybody who doesn't know yet. Could you give me some examples of things that you would see in a mall in Dubai? Usually at a mall in the United States, Canada. Sure. Dubai is known for having the world's largest everything. And my office was outside of Dubai Mall, so I, I had to walk there every day. We'd go for lunch there. So it became just the everyday quarter mall for me. But to anybody coming into the country, it's the, the biggest straw is that you've got the aquarium which is several stories high, and you can see it from three different floors of the mall. You would see a ski slope in one of them because all of these activities are brought indoors. Uh, the next one being built in Abu Dhabi, uh, which is the other one of the other Emirates, is they're building a skydiving. So they're doing a mock skydiving version uh, there so you can go, you know, drop from the ceiling. But these are all things that, again, just make it part of that entertainment. You spent the afternoon going not only to shop for your groceries or some clothing, but also to then partake in all of these other experiences. Definitely a must-see for everybody. If you've thought perhaps about traveling in the Middle East, I'm just an example of what you can do if you've got an imagination small personal fortune maybe to build a lot uh, what they have in Dubai and to build the Palm Island and yes great things oh yes another memory for me was the silver helicopter oh yes which was always busy like you could never get it because it was always taken so that just tells you the wealth that was there because it was a $600 ride for a kilometer. It was something really short. You're all 
please call me an Uber helicopter. I need to go out for dinner. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you again. This is just so fun and fascinating and I hope inspiring to other people to travel the world like you have and learn about other people and just open up our aperture. All right. So one more reminder, because the window was closing. We have a little contest here. Amanda's challenged you to name the seven Arab Emirates and put those in the comments below this on our YouTube channel. And she will judge and select randomly a winner. And I will mail you, no matter where you are in the world, a personally autographed copy of Who Am I Now? Feminine Wisdom, Unmasked and Uncensored. And today, we've just unmasked a whole lot more feminine wisdom. Thank you for joining us. Bye for now. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope our conversation added value to your day and expanded your vision for your legacy and impact. Please join me in increasing my impact and expanding my reach to even more people by sharing this episode on social media with friends and leaving a review on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or channel of choice. To catch all the latest from me, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform connect with me and others in our community Facebook group, The Lift As You Climb Movement, where you can engage, be inspired by, and grow with a tribe of like-minded people. As I evolve as a podcaster and spokeswoman for collaboration and economic empowerment, your input and feedback are especially important to me. I welcome your suggestions and questions to hello at theencorecatalyst.com. Until we meet again, please remember your success may be the foundation for someone else's. Together, we can raise success ladders around the world. Thank you.